Welcome to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast. This is your friendly neighborhood podcast host, Daniel Bauer. Better Leaders, Better Schools is a weekly show for ruckus makers. What is a ruckus maker? A leader who has found freedom from the status quo. A leader who makes change happen. A leader who never, ever gives up. In today's conversation, I speak with New York Times bestselling author Daniel Pink, and we discuss his new book, When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. This book will absolutely help you make change, because when you have a better understanding of time and can unlock its secrets, you can leverage the power of time in your leadership. Dan will share some helpful advice on how you should approach each day and how researching for this book changed his life for the better. So, Ruckus Maker, thanks for being here. And before we jump into today's episode, I'd like to take some time to thank our show sponsors. The Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast is brought to you by Organized Binder, which increases student active engagement and participation and reduces classroom management issues. Learn more at organizedbinder.com. The Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast is brought to you by TeachFX. Imagine having a Fitbit for teachers that measures student engagement. Learn more at teachfx.com. Today, I'm joined by Kelly Crane, expert coach at Better Leaders, Better Schools with today's tip of the week. What do you have for us today, Kelly? Hey, Danny. So today, we're going to talk a little bit about a tool we can use for a PD activity. Or you could even use it with your students if you're lucky enough to be in a school that has one-to-one computers. This came out of a mastermind group, and it's titled, What is a Place That You've Always Wanted to Visit? And we actually did this in the mastermind, and it was fascinating to listen to what other people were saying. So you put together a Google Doc, and you put together a PowerPoint within that doc, and you assign a slide to each person. So the people, you share it with those people. The people go find their slide and they import a picture of a place that they've always wanted to visit. There's even a text box that you can put in there, a little text and share some insight to why. And then after you're done, everybody gets to explain where that place is. And so you see these beautiful pictures and there was one that was underwater scuba diving, but you didn't know, I think it was with a stingray too, but you don't know where. And so I know the one I put was for Australia and, you know, I put, it was just awesome. I just want to go there. And so it's really a great way to get to know people. I think it would even be a great tool for students and being able to share out and put that up in front of the class. So that is the tip of the week. Wow. So this is a a Google slide presentation, keynote, PowerPoint. Uh, People pick the locations where they'd like to go. And it's sort of like a a guess who, if I'm hearing you correctly, and sort of a team building activity. Uh, And then you go through and try to guess like a location and who that connects to. Am I catching that right? Well, you could do it that way, but basically the person just describes where it's at. And some people Ah. might know. So they just go to their slide and it's only one picture that you put in there. So it's the one place that you've always wanted to visit. So I totally made that up, but okay. So the person picks the location, they stand up and they present, this is my place and here's why I want to go there. Right. But I like your made up one too. That's a good tip. I live in a fascinating world, Kelly, and I'm just glad you're (laughs) a part of it. 
All right. So this is this is free just on presentations. This is awesome. Team building, ruckus makers, you could make this happen today if you wanted to. And thanks, Kelly, so much for sharing this tip of the week. And now on to our leadership conversation with Dan Pink, New York Times bestselling author of the hit book, When. Well, hey there, better leaders. We are here today with Daniel Pink. And Daniel H. Pink is the author of six provocative books, including the newest, When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, which spent four months on the New York Times bestseller list and was named a best book of 2018 by Amazon, iBooks, Goodreads, and several more outlets. His other books include the long-running New York Times bestseller, A Whole New Mind, and the number one New York Times bestsellers, Drive and To Sell is Human. His books have won multiple awards and have been translated into 39 languages. He lives in Washington, D.C. with his family. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Absolutely. And and publicly, I just want to say uh, thanks. You know, I've enjoyed your work uh, for quite a while. I've been thinking a lot about autonomy, mastery, and purpose since I read Drive. Right. And uh, if you could go back, you remember to, to sell as human. And when you launched that, there was like a bonus uh, sort of package that readers could invest in, which I did. And we got a workshop. Oh, yeah, we got the workshop. Yeah. We got an ebook before the uh, print book was out. You got one of these nifty notebooks. And so listen, I have to tell you an interesting <laughs> side note. Daniel, you introduced me to field notes. And right. uh, I, I write my wife poetry in those little journals. And oh, so nice. she has a book of poetry there. And at our marriage uh, ceremony, we had those all around, you know, the tables. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And folks wrote us into uh, wedding, you know, and marriage advice. So I just want to thank you for that. That's because, cool. Yeah, that's a cool idea. You introduced me to it. So thanks. All right. Rock and roll. So let's talk about the newest book, When. And let's start with the, the Genesis story. Why did you write this book? The Genesis story. In the beginning, <laughs> uh, there was. So in the beginning, I was making decisions, all kinds of decisions about timing. So I was deciding, I'm talking to you here in my office. So like, when should I do my writing? When should I do, you know, when should I not do my writing, but send out a FedEx package? When should I do other kinds of work? When should I go for a run? And I was making those decisions in a pretty haphazard way. That frustrated me. I thought there was probably a better way to make these decisions. So I looked around for guidance. And to my surprise, that guidance did not exist. So... Hmm. As you know from the book Drive and, and from Sell as Human, the last few books I've written have taken a look at pretty interesting bodies of social science, trying to figure out what does this tell us about how we can do things a little bit differently uh, in our schools, uh, in our businesses, wherever. And I said, well, I wonder if there's any research on timing. And I started looking around, and there was a huge amount of research on timing. The, the challenge was that it was in many, 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 many disciplines, literally two dozen different disciplines from economics to molecular biology to chronobiology. But all of these different disciplines were asking very, very similar questions. In fact, in some ways, in some cases, literally identical questions about how does you know the rhythm of the day affect how we feel, how we perform, how do beginnings affect us, how do midpoints shape our behavior, what do endings do for us, how do groups synchronize in time. And so after a couple of years of research and just really going through this massive piles and piles and piles of stuff, I felt like there was a way to crack the code that you could use this, this very, very broad body of science to help people make better, smarter decisions about when to do things. Mm -hmm. 
in after writing that book, you know, in some some respects, it sounds like you're doing the research for yourself out of some frustrations. How has that impacted, you know, your approach to each day? Oh, big time. I mean, in, a, in a number of really interesting ways. So for instance, I mean, at least interesting to me. Uh, so for instance, well, it'll make more sense if I take a step back and explain some of the some of the principles here, particularly when it comes to the pattern of the day. One right. of the things that we know, again, from this rich body of research is that we tend to move through the day in three stages, a peak, a trough, and a recovery. Yeah. Most of us move through the day in that order. People who are night owls do not. People who are night owls are much more complicated. I'm not a night owl. About 20% of the population has what's called an evening chronotype. They naturally go to sleep late and wake up late. They're not lazy. They just have a different chronotype in a way that, you know, similar to like some people are short and some people are tall. It's just the way human beings, you know, the way human beings are. And so I tend to move through the day peak trough recovery. What we know is that, you know, peak generally in the morning, trough in kind of the, the middle of the day and then recovery late afternoon and early evening. And what we know about the peak is that's the best time. That's when we're most vigilant. So that's when we're best at batting away distractions. So during that peak period, that's when we should be doing our heads down analytic work. So for me, it's basically, that would be things like, uh, you know, reading research papers, writing would be a huge portion of that, you know, that you have that requires really intense focus and non-distractability. During the, the trough period, I'm talking to you at one o'clock, uh, Eastern time. So the trough period really starts beginning pretty much after this interview. That's a very bad time of day for most people. And so that's when we should be doing our administrative work. And that's when truly, I mean, you, you know, we have, a, this is an audio podcast, but you and I are talking by video. So for your listeners out there, I mean, literally I have like a FedEx package here, as you can see, ready to go. I'm not going to, I'm going to deal with that after immediately after this. <laughs> and so you do your administrative work during the trough and the recovery work uh, during the recovery period. That's when we're, we're mentally loose, less vigilant, but mentally loose in a decent mood. And so that's better for certain kinds of creative things. So all of which is to say is that I'm much more systematic about when I do things. Mm-hmm. So for instance, even in the writing of this book, uh, I would come into my office around 8.15, 8.30, but I would not bring my phone with me. I would not uh, open up my email uh, because I knew I had this window of vigilance that lasted from maybe 8.30 to 12.30 ballpark, four hours, not a huge amount of time. And that's when I should be doing my heads down writing. And so I've reconfigured my schedule like that. I try not to answer email in the morning uh, because I can basically push that off to like 2.30, 3 o'clock in the afternoon when it's, I'm at my worst. And so it's really changed the way I configure my daily schedule. It's also made me much more aware of things like uh, especially midpoints, like when you get to a midpoint of a project, how do people react? How do I react? I'm much more intentional about endings. Endings have this profound effect on how we behave, on how we feel, and how we remember experiences. So I'm much more deliberate about. I'm much more deliberate about that. Um, so it's so this. I think, uh, and I've written six books. Of the six books I've written, this is probably the one that has had the most direct impact on my day to day life. I mean, I basically wrote. I, in some level, I wrote it because I wanted to read it. Yeah. You know, yeah. no one else had written this book. So I was like, this is a book I really wanted to read. It's sort of a pain in the ass that I had to write it in order to read it. But I'm glad I wrote it because it's a pretty good book. And I learned a lot and it changed how I do things. 
Exactly. And and you, you mentioned how endings matter so much, you know, and I remember, I think the book talked about the James Dean effect. Oh yeah. The listeners are going to hear this uh, towards the end of their, their school year. So we don't necessarily have to go into the details of uh, colonoscopies or, you know, Kahneman's uh, research, but we could, Right. but, but how might our, our listeners leverage the power of endings as they consider wrapping up the school year? What we know about endings is that endings have multiple effects on our behavior. One of them is that endings help us energize. So when we see the end of something, when the end of something becomes salient, people kick a little bit harder. So this, there's some really peculiar research showing that if you offer groups of people a gift certificate and give one group two months to cash it in and one group three weeks, the group with less time is more likely to cash it in. Mm-hmm. Literally five times more likely to cash in the gift certificate, even though they have less time. And the reason for that is that the end is, is, is salient. We see this in a number of different dimensions. Endings, as you alluded to on some of Kahneman's work and even the famous study about colonoscopies, uh, endings help us encode experiences. That is, they, they help us, uh, they play a disproportionate role in how we uh, remember and evaluate entire experiences. Uh, endings are, are in some ways meaning makers. So when we get to the end of something, we start searching for meaning. We have this preference for endings that with rising sequences rather than declining sequences. And so it's important to understand the multifaceted way that endings affect us. Now, to your to this long-winded prelude to your simple question, how can educators use this? I think there are a number of different things. So, so number one is that you know things like interim deadlines can be effective for students. Mm-hmm. So especially for longer-term projects. Um, Depending on the age of the kid, kids always don't always have like the foresight and the ability to plan something out over the long term. So establishing interim deadlines can get them to move a little bit faster. You also see ending the year on like a on an elevated note is really important. Right. I actually talk about talk to some teachers in this book who do these very deliberate things at the end of the school year. One of my favorites is this guy in Chicago. He's a uh, teaches at a um, high school. He's an economics teacher at a high school. And what he does is at the end of the year, he has his seniors write letters to themselves that he mails to them five years later. Oh, wow. And this ends up being this really meaningful thing. One teacher has his students write there. Uh, elementary school teacher has his students write like a short, I think it's like a, maybe it's a one sentence bio or a five word bio or something like that mm-hmm. uh, about who they are. Yeah. And she hangs them on a closed line at the beginning of the year. And then on the last day, they write the new bio and look at how they've changed as people over the course of the school year. Uh, so some of these teachers are doing extraordinary things. And so, so if you, you can look at the end of the school year as a way to energize students to get some more stuff done. You can look at it as a way you know, that, that as students will look back on what was third grade like, what was ninth grade like, whatever, the, how that ninth grade ends is going to have a is going to disproportionately weigh on how they evaluate the whole experience. And so if you're deliberate about that, you can actually shape their total experience. Mm. And if you have an end that actually is meaningful, that, that, and that elevates, it's even more powerful. Daniel, I appreciate those practical examples. And uh, one reason we, we picked, you know, your book, I knew it would be filled with ideas that folks could implement uh, just like the letter example you gave right into the future self or uh, the other teacher who had that shorter bio and how kids changed, you know, something else that we really enjoyed in the leadership community. I'm going to actually do this with them is to create that time capsule moment 
And I'm wondering, uh, you know, if you might uh, explain that a bit to the listeners today. Well, I mean, time capsules are a time capsules are. I, I've always been fascinated by time capsules in general. When mm. when I was a kid, when you yeah. think about it, it's like because I, I just remember being a kid in the. I'm, I'm dating myself big time here, but we could edit it out. <laughs> in, no, that's no, fine. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I, I can't hide how old I am. So I was. So I'm going. Let's go way back to 1976. Mm. 1976 was the bicentennial, and I was in sixth grade, and and at some point. At our school, I think, put together a time capsule. Like, what was life like at the bicentennial? And just even thinking, like, you know, and then at some point, I have no idea where it is or whether it's going to be ever be revealed or uncovered. But even that, even that whole exercise is is quite fascinating. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great learning, uh, great learning uh, mechanism for kids because if you say, okay, what are the artifacts? What are the things that define who we are right now? And then if they have the opportunity to look at other things in the past, people who are similarly situated, I think that's itself is, I think that itself, itself is quite fascinating. I think that, that sort of the, the meta level uh, of all of this is getting people aware of the temporal nature of our lives. What we mm-hmm. know from this research is at, you know, it's a unit of a day, just like just a typical day. Forget about these broad patterns of history. Forget about the whole human life cycle. Just think about in a day. Uh, what we know about students, what we know about adults, what we know about human beings is that our cognitive abilities don't stay the same throughout the day. They change. They change in fairly predictable ways. They can change in material ways. And so getting people aware of that, saying, you know what, all times of day are not the best times of day for writing. It matters what time of day that you write. That, I think, is profound. Getting people to think about the temporal nature of their lives is important. Rec- even understanding that in the course of a year, a year school year has a beginning, it has a middle, it has an end. Projects have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And all of these things exert different influences on us. And if we're just aware of what's going on out there, uh, we can, I think, do better and, and learn more. So ultimately, some of this stuff is, at, at a meta level, is making us aware that we're temporal creatures. We have biological clocks in every cell in our body. And we are moving through time. You and I are having a conversation that at this moment began in the past. You and I are having a conversation that will end in the future. It hasn't arrived yet. And so it's inescapable, the temporal nature of our, of our lives. And, and, and if you're, instead of just neglecting that, being ignorant of that, blinding ourselves to that, being aware of it, I think, can allow us to make better, smarter choices. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because so often we, we try to fight that nature as well. So the ignorance of it or the resistance, you know, uh, I wonder how much better we would serve our, our communities or, or lead or uh, just enjoy a higher quality of life if we just let that happen at that time, because it is, there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. And it's, it, it, well, and also being deliberate about it, being deliberate being about it. I think, there's, I think there's some, I think there's some very big implications for schools here. So for instance, what we know, especially about younger students, students who haven't been teenagers yet is that it's pretty overwhelming that they do better on academic subjects in the morning than they do in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. There's some big studies of that in Denmark showing that kids who took standardized tests in the morning, in the afternoon versus kids who took standardized tests in the morning scored as if they missed two weeks of school. Right. Just random assignment of when kids took the test. There's a big piece of research out of the LA Unified School District showing that kids who had math in the morning learn more math. And so when we think about even something like a school schedule or the master schedule, we think about it as something that is really about logistics. It's about moving, you know, it's like trucking in, in some ways. We're just, uh-huh. it's a logistics exercise. We're just, how do we move 
the bodies efficiently from one place to another. And the master schedule obviously is about logistics, but it's not only about that because Mm -hmm. the time of day that students do certain things has a material effect on how much they learn. Yeah. So Colin, uh, he's in the leadership community and just want to give him a shout out. He actually brought that up. Uh, He's at a a school in New Jersey. His entire school scheduling team is reading one because we're reading it in our our leadership community and he's enjoying it so much. They're reading it at the school level. And that was his question. How do you take something like the master schedule and, you know, without upending it and creating just complete chaos within the community or whatever tradition, all this type of stuff, you know, what would be those small tweaks that they could do and still honor those big ideas that are presented in uh, when? Uh, What I'm hearing is breaks, uh, but what else? Oh, yeah. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Breaks breaks would be a big part of it. I think it's really, really hard because, again, I don't want to say that the master schedule is not about logistics. It is. The master schedule is is about logistics. It's about resources. It is about these fundamental things that you would face, whether if you're running DHL or whether you're operating in elementary school. There are logistical realities that you have to deal with. To me, though, is that there also are strategic implications there. So, so what, I would, what I would wonder is, is there a way, let's take an elementary school, is there a way to have to configure the schedule so that we can get as much of, say, math and language arts in the morning versus the afternoon and maybe have things like art and music, which often will benefit from kids being a little bit loose. Or not always, but art, you know, things like fine arts, whether it's visual arts or whether it's musical arts or theatrical arts, whether we could have those more in more in the afternoon. When you think about other things on the other things on the master schedule, as you mentioned, breaks. We should be having more breaks, and we should be having certain kinds of breaks. And, and that's true for students, but it's also true for teachers. It's it's sort of amazing to me how few breaks teachers get compared to most white collar professionals and how little discretion they have over their breaks. And what we know about breaks is that breaks are part of our performance. They're not a deviation from performance. Breaks enhance our performance. A smart break makes us better at our job. So being intentional about about breaks. Then there are things like, like school start times. School start times for teenagers. This is not a close call, man. School start times for teenagers are, are too late, generally, in most schools. Uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics has said, implored school districts around America not to start school for teenagers before 8.30 in the morning. And yet, most schools start before 8.30 in the morning. 7 o'clock, 7.30. 7 o'clock or 7.30 for teenagers is start time for school is contraindicated by every piece of medical evidence we have. You go to the Centers for Disease Control, you go to basically the American Academy of Pediatrics, they will tell you, don't do that. Right. And so what we have, though, is so we need to push back start times for teenagers. But at some level, you know, I think we, you know, we might be able to get some juice out of starting elementary school, perhaps even a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. Those two schools should not be starting at the same time. This is I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish about this. This is a really, really hard problem to solve. But I think we have to take a bite of this apple. And I think we have to, I think we can make some kinds of, of progress on this. I mean, even more broadly, when we think about the master schedule, whatever the, think about it at high school. I mean, there are relatively few high schools in America that have block schedules. Mm-hmm. You know, we think that basically, you know what, we should have, you know, the proper time is 48 minutes for every single subject every day. 
So it's like, you're studying physics? 48 minutes. Bell goes off. 48 minutes. And we don't say, <laughs> well, wait a second. Maybe if you had 90 minutes, you could do a physics lab. Mm-hmm. Maybe if you had 90 minutes, you could have a more enriching uh, art class. And go deep with your learning. Absolutely. So mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of opportunities here to think of the key here. Again, forgive me for being circuitous about this. The real, the conceptual key here is that scheduling is not just about logistics. Scheduling is a pedagogical exercise, that there are pedagogical implications to every scheduling decisions that schools and districts make, period. And you brought up uh, the younger kids, elementary schools. Uh, Rob wrote in, and he, he, has, he has little ones. I mean, five to seven years old. And he's seeing them really struggle, Daniel, persisting through the school day. Uh, we're talking kindergartners. And, and this is a place, too, that they've, they've taken away. They've gone to a full day because just by extending, you know, that's obviously going to make kids uh, smarter because they, they're getting more hours. Uh, not right. only have they extended the full day, but they've taken away naps. So knowing that is the context, is there anything that, that, that he could do in terms of helping his kids survive and persist through the school day? I mean, I, I think that a, a school day that goes from eight to four or something like that is an extraordinary long day for a five-year-old. Mm-hmm. Uh, and anybody who has been a five-year-old, and most of us have, <laughs> anybody yep. who's had five-year-olds in their household, whether you're an educator or not, knows that's a long day for a, for, for a five-year-old. And so this is a tough issue because what you also have is you have, we have big problems in insufficient childcare in, sure. in America. So that, that if you have two working parents who have scrambling to work at jobs to pay the rent or pay the mortgage, you know, it's like stopping school for five-year-olds at one o'clock in the afternoon creates another, creates a different kind of problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just think it's about, I, I think what we should do is, is, is think more about giving kids more breaks, giving kids more recess. One of the things that's really insidious that if you get just even a couple of years above K, you have a move by state legislators to eliminate recess or to reduce recess significantly as if recess, Mm -hmm. as if recess is a, is a frivolity. When in fact it's not recess is part of learning. So first of all, you learn social and, and emotional skills by playing but you also need a break. And we know we have a lot of research on this. Um, so I mentioned, alluded to, there's an important study out of Denmark of standardized testing showing that kids, as I mentioned, kids who took standardized tests in the afternoon scored as if they missed two weeks of school versus kids who taking standardized tests in the, in the morning. But a remedy for that was that if you give those afternoon test takers a 20 to 30 minute break to have a snack and run around beforehand, their scores go back up. Yeah, it's fascinating. And so... You know, this idea that human beings can be all on all the time is not, it just goes against our nature, literally our nature, literally mm-hmm. goes against our biology. And there is this, there is this, I think, well-intentioned, but ultimately perverse move that more, 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 more hours, more hours, more hours is always a solution. When in fact, what we know is that Better hours are the solution. Thoughtful hours are the solution. Understanding kids' brains and bodies and being intentional about how you configure the school day based on that scientific knowledge is really what matters. Right. 
Better Leaders, Better Schools is proudly sponsored by Organized Binder, a program which gives students daily exposure to goal setting, reflective learning, time and task management, study strategies, organizational skills, and more. Organized Binder's color-coded system is implemented by the teacher with the students, helping them create a predictable and dependable classroom routine. Learn more and improve your students' executive functioning and non-cognitive skills at OrganizedBinder.com. The Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast is brought to you by TeachFX. Imagine if you could give every teacher their own personal instructional coach. Using the latest advances in artificial intelligence, TeachFX gives teachers private automated feedback on teaching strategies such as open-ended questioning, wait time, and talk ratio, all from the microphone of their phone, tablet, or laptop. Learn how you can get TeachFX in your school and get a special offer by visiting teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. So I want to go back to the time capsule. I thought it'd be fun to to unpack that a bit for the listeners because uh, we've given them a lot of practical tips so far in, in the show. And thank you for that. Uh, and some of the notes I jotted down from when your book uh, is that you can, you know, consider what are some songs you listened to recently? What was the last social event you have attended? And these are the type of questions that uh, the listeners can ask of their staff or teachers can yeah. ask of their students. And uh, I was wondering if you'd humor me that we could go through a couple. We could create a time capsule, so to speak. Yeah, that's cool. All right. So, so Daniel, what are... I wish you would I wish you would have warned me about this ahead of time, but I, I can I can think quick. Lee? All right. All right. <laughs> Sorry about that. What are three songs you have listened to recently? Three songs that I have listened to recently. I'm trying to think. Now, unfortunately, my musical tastes are not that, that contemporary. But I have to say, the, the song that I most, the most recently listened to was uh, in part because um, it, it, was in, it was in the news literally in the last 24 hours was the Childish Gambino, This Is America song, I, um, which I really liked, actually. Yeah, I think it's yeah. fantastic. Uh, so I listened to that recently. And then I, the other ones that I listened to, okay, so I also listened to Funky Town recently only nice. because yeah. I like that. I like that as a running song um, uh, in part because it, it doesn't have, it doesn't, it, like the lyrics essentially don't matter. It's all about the beat. <laughs> so you don't have to think about it. Yeah. And it also is like a seven and a half minute. It's a seven and a half minute. It's almost an eight minute song. Mm. And so... With an eight-minute song, maybe you got on a mile repeat, in. I can, I can. Well, I'm not that fast, but I can get almost a mile in, um, in in eight minutes. So I listen to that, and I don't know what else I listen to. Those, I, so I'm sorry, I have two. Two's fine. That's all right. Yeah. You still get this an is eight. America and uh, and uh, in Funky Town. The video is fantastic too. If you haven't seen that for for this, for this is America. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's a fast. It is a fascinating video. I, I when I saw that the first time, I was like, "This could actually like stand the test of time in a way that many music videos can will not." Right. That I, I can see it being something literally that scholars study mm. twenty years from now, forty years from now, sixty years from now. Lover is a talented guy. Uh, oh, he's music, his acting, and I, I'm a yeah. huge fan. Uh, another question from Time Capsule: Last social event you attended? The last uh, last social event I attended is that yesterday. Uh, my wife and I had two friends over for lunch who were visiting from out of town, and we had a lovely 
lovely time. Like I just sat around and had like a three hour conversation, which is something that I hadn't done for a while. Nice. Do you take a lot of photos on your phone? And, and uh, if you do, what do you think the last picture was you took? Well, let's go to the videotape. Uh, let's see here. Cause I happen to have my phone right here. What's the last picture I took in the camera roll. Yeah. Uh, bump, 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 bump. Oh, okay. So these don't really count. Okay. So, cause I took, so sometimes <laughs> so I use, not- I'm, I'm going to, well, yeah. Cause like, like, yeah. like, yeah. so literally the last one is, uh, I took a photograph of a paragraph of a physical newspaper I was reading. So, so that's kind of boring. Cause that's like taking notes, but the actual last <laughs> photograph, photograph here, I'll show it to you. The last photograph is the homemade cheese fries I made for Super Bowl Sunday. So good. <laughs> They're so a- good. These were so good. Can you see that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is that a family recipe or you found it online? Uh, I found it. Uh, well, I found it online and, 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 to, and tweaked it. It's not really a family recipe. Also, my, I have a 16-year-old son and my wife was away for the Super Bowl. So we get to, so whenever my wife is away and my 16-year-old son yeah. and I are, are here, and we, each, we, each, we each have time. It's basically... Uh, uh, live sporting events and really bad food that my wife would not otherwise eat. Way to sneak it in. That's great. Yeah. Uh, and the last question too would just be for the time capsule. Um, what's a, a book or resource that's really impacted your quality of life in the last three months? Quality of life. Let's see here. Okay, I'll give you one. Uh, it's a real. I think it was in the last three months that I read this thing. It's a book called The Art of Gathering by Priya Parker. Yeah, we're reading. And- we're going to read that in the leadership community. You should. It's a freaking great book, yeah. and and it what what it did it what it it improved the quality of life, my quality of life to the extent because it made me sort of like the stuff that I'm talking to you about timing. It made me much more aware and intentional mm-hmm. about uh, about gatherings, whether it's having people over for whether it's having people over for you know like just a, like an informal lunch or uh, even having a, having a meeting. That was just me and my son in the basement. That wasn't really a, a formal gathering wasn't a gathering of any kind. It was just, uh, it was just an extremely boring Super Bowl and an extremely tasty snack. But that book, The Art of Gathering, made me much more intentional about, um, you know, like how do, like, like when you have a meeting or when you have a conference or when you do something that, in, that involves people coming together, what are the design choices you're making? Uh, why is it important as Priya's Parker's book says not to be chill about putting it all together. Why is it important actually to keep people out, not make it totally open? Why is it important to have some set of rules? Um, and how does that enrich our experience of gathering? So it's one of my favorite books of the last of the last year. Uh, and I'm glad that teachers are reading. I think it's a, I think it's a great book for educators. Yeah, so we'll we'll definitely link up one, and and we'll uh, link up the book you just mentioned too, uh, the Art of Gathering, uh, for our listeners as well. Well, Daniel, uh, this is the last question I told you about uh, this one, so it's a fan favorite, listener favorite. Uh, you're building a school from the ground up. You're not. Limited. Oh, you did tell me about this one. Yeah, you didn't <laughs> warn me about the other ones, but this one you told me about. Listen, you got to have some surprises. I'm a ruckus maker, yeah. so you know it's yeah, not all yeah, by yeah. the book. Uh, you're building the school from the ground up. You're not limited by any resources. Your only limitation is your imagination. How would you build Daniel Pink's dream school? And what would be your top three priorities? My top three, well, I know my top priority. My top priority would be, would be to find the best teachers in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the evidence is overwhelming when we look at the lived experience of kids in classrooms, that the most important thing is who the teacher is. Uh, and the difference between having a great teacher and a mediocre teacher is vast at every age. So I would want 
I would start with the very best teachers and give them a decent amount of, I mean, at some level, what I would do is I would say, find the very best teachers in the world and then say, okay, what are you all best teachers in the world? You should be number two and three. That, honestly, that would be my, that would be my answer. Now, assuming, I don't that seems a little bit evasive on your question. So I guess the second thing that I would do would be to um, think very hard about as much as possible, start with a blank slate when it comes to both subject matter and timing and really think that anew and not immediately say, we're going to teach math, we're going to teach English, we're going to teach social studies, we're going to teach science. I'm not saying I wouldn't do that, but what I would do is I would put that up for questions. I would put that up for questions. Reframing it. I would put the schedule up for questions. I would put the schedule up as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, what's to say, why do we say that the school meets every day? Exactly. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe if we keep the traditional subjects, maybe it actually works better for students to do math for a week or whether it works better for students to do history for a week or two weeks or even better, maybe what we do is we organize things into units of inquiry and we have a question that the mm-hmm. students want to ask and the teachers can help them answer and we answer that question from the viewpoint of different disciplines, from literature, from science from social science, from mathematics. And so I would put those kinds of questions up for grabs. And then the other thing that I would do is, I, I, and, I, and I think the evidence here is very good, is I would make, um, I would integrate the arts into all of that as well, that I wouldn't have a school that was only these so-called academic subjects, that I would integrate the arts into the overall, into the overall school, whether it's the visual arts, whether it's musical arts, whether it's theatrical arts. Um, and make those actually a fundamental part of the education rather than this kind of what it is now, which is sort of this kind of side ornamental part of the education. Daniel, thank you so much for being a part of the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast. Any parting words of advice for our listeners and what's the best way to get a hold of you? Best way to get a hold of me is uh, via my website, which is www.danpink.com, www.danpink.com. There's all kinds, there's a free newsletter, there's all kinds of free resources, the information on the books, videos, all kinds of groovy stuff. And as for the parting words, I don't know. I mean, you know, my mother was a public school teacher. I have had just enormous, I just have enormous respect for people who go into education. It is in this country, unfortunately, such a thankless job at times. You got so many people working so freaking hard just to do the right thing in a system that is just unforgiving where the winds are always blowing against them. So I, I'm, I'm actually a little bit sheepish about telling those folks what to do. I guess the one thing that I would say to the folks who are doing that heroic work is, you know, I and many other people out there just are so grateful and so admire what, what you all are doing that even though it's a pain in the ass on many, many days that there are a lot of people out there in this country who revere what you're doing and who are grateful for what you're doing. Oh, we appreciate that message. And thanks again, Daniel, for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, Ruckus Maker. If you have a question or would like to connect, my email, daniel at betterleadersbetterschools.com or hit me up on Twitter at Alien Earbud. If the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast is helping you grow as a school leader, then please help us serve more ruckus makers like you. You can subscribe, leave an honest rating and review, or share on social media with your biggest takeaway from the episode. Extra credit for tagging me on Twitter at Alien Earbud and using the hashtag BLBS. 
Level up your leadership at betterleadersbetterschools.com and talk to you next time. Until then, class dismissed.